1955, the Anglican theologian J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And he wrote this book out of his own concerns about what he was seeing in the evangelical world of his day. He was convinced that people had lost sight of who the true God is and what this true God is actually like. And as a result, they were not coming to grips with the true God. In the book, Philip lists several faulty views of God that he had been observing, such as God as the resident policeman. I mean, all of us have a conscience that either condemns us or vindicates us at different times. And we often have thoughts about God and it's easy to take those thoughts about God and tie them into our conscience so that God becomes something like the one who is always making us feel bad for wrong, making us feel good for right. And that's the conception that some people have of God. Another is God as an imperfect parent. None of us had perfect parents. Some of us had horrible parents. And those experiences of our parental authority early in life very often get attached to our conceptions of God. And Phillips acknowledged that and recorded it. Another that he recorded is God as the grand old man. You know, he's a good guy up in heaven and he's always jolly and he wants to do good and he wants everybody to be happy and have everything that they want in this world. Another he identified as God as managing director, the one who's in charge. And so he's wanting to make sure everything gets done in precise ways. He's not much concerned with anything or anyone else or the second hand God Phillips described. Your parents or your relatives, your loved one knows God. And so you kind of feel like you get in on God that way. And yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're religious because my wife goes to church. Or God in a box. God to me. I know what God would do in this situation. I know what God would have me do. He wants me to do this. And God can do these things, but nothing more. Well, there's several others that he gives in this book. The point of writing it is that when we fail to get our thoughts about God from his revelation of himself in Scripture, then our conceptions of him will inevitably be too small. We will not think of God as we ought to think of him. Well, around the same time that Phillips was writing his book, A.W. Tozer made the following observation. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, what you conceive God to be will determine how you live in this world. It's more important in your life than anything else that you might esteem or value. It'll reveal the kind of person you really are. Tozer went on to elaborate this point by writing, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most, most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, he writes, by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And this is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. So what you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
It defines you. That idea that you carry around with you about God will direct your life. What you really think about Him. Not merely what you intellectually know about God, but what you in your heart of hearts have settled as truth regarding God. This will determine the way you live your life. It will determine your ethics. That which you judge to be right and wrong, good and bad. It will determine your values. That which you aspire to it will shape your decisions. It will govern your worship. So the more that you comprehend the greatness of God in all of his works, especially in his work of saving sinners from sin, the more you inevitably will praise him as God. This is true because theology undergirds and compels doxology. Where the truth about God is unashamedly held, praise for God will be robustly given. God is always demonstrating the truth of this as His people gather in worship like we are on the Lord's Day, as His people move into the world on the mission that He's given us to do, where understanding of God is accurate and growing. Praise for God will be robust. But the opposite is true as well, where expressions of praise for God are tepid, lackadaisical, or weak, or absent, you can be sure that the reason for such weak worship is a faulty view of God. Mark it down. Where there's little worship, there's little regard for God. In our previous study in the book of Romans, we started looking at the doxology that the Apostle Paul wrote at the end of Romans chapter 11. And we noted then that the outburst of this praise that comes from the pen of the apostle is a result of what he had just written in the previous 11 chapters, especially what he had just written in chapters 9 through 11, where he explains the grace of God in the gospel is working in the life of Jewish people and will work in the life of both Jews and Gentiles in the future. As Paul concludes his explanation about the ways of God in saving sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, he cannot help but break out in praise to the glory of God alone. And that's what that doxology entails. So let's return to those last four verses of chapter 11 of Paul's letter to the church at Rome and consider this morning how all theology rightly held, leads to genuine doxology. Our text is Romans eleven thirty three through 36. It's found in the Bibles provided for you in the chairs on page 947. I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word in front of you so that you're actually looking at the words of Scripture as we work our way through these last portions of that doxology. Hear the Word of the Lord from Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. All true 
theology leads to genuine doxology. Now, the last time that we looked at this, I began to explore with you how this doxology arises out of the doctrine that Paul has just written about and how doctrine should inform our own expressions of praise to God. I noted that in this doxology, we see how doctrine should inform our praise, should shape our praise in at least three ways. We should, first of all, praise God for his excellencies. And that's where we spent our time last week looking at verses 33 and 34. Today, we want to look at the second and third ways that doxology is shaped by theology. And that is to see how we praise God for his self-sufficiency. And then secondly, how we are to praise God forever. By way of review, in verses 33 and 34, we see the Apostle Paul praising God for his unfathomable excellencies. He is overwhelmed with the thought of the wisdom and knowledge of God that he's just been elaborating as he explains the grace of God in the gospel. These excellencies of his mind are immeasurable. They're beyond measure, Paul says. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's what's in view in verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. In verse 34, the Apostle Paul gives the first of a series of rhetorical questions to show that the excellencies of God's mind are beyond compare. For who is known, verse 34 says, the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Now, this is a two-part question. We could even take it as two separate questions, but they are rhetorical. It's not Paul's not asking it because he needs information. He's asking it to make a point. The point is nobody has fully known the mind of the Lord. Nobody has been his counselor. Consideration of God's work in saving us forces us to confront his wisdom and knowledge and how much higher his thoughts are than our thoughts, how much higher his ways are than our ways. This is especially true when we think about the absolute sovereignty of God's grace in planning and executing salvation. And this is what the Apostle Paul has been zeroed in on, especially since chapter 9. For example, he writes in chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, that God said to Rebekah's twins, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And Paul says that this was done before either one of them were born as twins to the same mother and the same father. And it was done, according to verse 11, so that God's purpose in election might continue. He goes on in that same context in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 9 to cite God's dealings with Moses, further highlighting the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation. In verse 15 of chapter 9, look at it. He quotes Exodus 33, verse 19, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. After quoting God's words to Pharaoh, that God raised him up for the expressed purpose that he was unfolding in Pharaoh's life with the particular concern that God's own name would be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Paul concludes in verse 18 with these words. So then, God, 
He has mercy on whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. By explaining God's sovereignty and election, choosing specific people to be saved, Paul is demonstrating that the Word of God has not failed. Which is his burden in this whole three chapters, 9, 10, 11. We see it in verse 6 of chapter 9. God's Word has not failed. God always has had a chosen remnant within the national people of Israel. So the overarching rejection of Israelites, of God's Messiah, did not catch God off guard. In fact, Paul says, God planned it. He's the one who brought a partial hardening on the Jews. That's the language that Paul uses in verse 25 of chapter 11. God did this in order to graft in Gentiles to that tree of salvation so that they too might be reconciled to him. But Paul wants us to know God's not finished with the Jewish people. Though they have for the most part rejected Christ, their rejection is neither total nor final. God plans to make Jews jealous of the grace that he's showering upon Gentiles and reconciling them to himself so that they too, a great host of the Jewish people will turn from their sins and also come to trust Jesus Christ as Lord. And as he says in verse 26 of chapter 11, thus shall all Israel be saved. Now Paul sums up God's operations of grace in verse 32 of chapter 11, where he writes, in summary, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And after writing that, he just can't help himself. He just breaks out in this doxology, these expressions of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He praises God for God's unfathomable excellencies. And then in verses 35 and 36 that we want to zero in on this morning, Paul uses another rhetorical question followed by an explanatory statement. First of all, to praise God for his undeniable self-sufficiency. God is self-sufficient. Look at verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, this is a direct reference to Job chapter 41, verse 11, where God specifically asks Job, who has given to me that I should repay him? In other words, to whom am I am I in debt? Who do I owe? That's the question he put to Job. Paul here takes it, turns it into third person statement that is calling us to reflect upon the reality that God owes nobody anything. He's not anyone's debtor. He doesn't owe anybody material things, food, shelter, job, friendships, health, wealth. God is not in our debt as if He owes us these things. 
Neither does he owe us anything spiritual like forgiveness, peace, reconciliation with himself. He doesn't owe us salvation. What this means is that everything we get from God is grace. Everything that comes to us that's good in this world comes to us out of the kindness and the mercy of God. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament when King David was led by God to raise an offering to build the first temple? David wanted to build it, but because he had blood on his hands, God wouldn't allow him, but he was going to allow his son Solomon to build it. But David could raise money for it. And so when he called upon the people to to give offerings for the construction of the temple, they gave more than enough. It was an overwhelming amount of offering. And as David stopped to consider this incredible outpouring of sacrificial giving, he offered up a prayer of thanksgiving to God in response. That prayer is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And in verse 14 of the prayer there, he says, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Incredible offering. David thanks God and he says, All this that your people have given has come from you. Because all we have has come from you. Do you understand this, brothers and sisters? When we give financially, we're simply returning to the Lord a portion of what he's given us. We're not paying God off. It's not dues. We're not adding to God anything that he needs. We are acknowledging that all we are, all we have is from his hand. And as stewards of what he's entrusted to us, We want to honor Him in worship by giving. The Apostle Paul makes this very same point in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, where he writes, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's a good question to put to yourself periodically. What do I have that I have not been given? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. But I worked for this. I, I've been diligent in order to attain these things. That may be true. But where did you get your diligence? Who gave you the strength to work? Who gave you the mind to understand? Who put you in that position of opportunity? Everything you have, all that you are, is because of God. Now, if that's true, why do we live as if it's not true? Amen. We forget, right? And the Word of God calls us constantly to come back and remember these things. That we are dependent. God is not dependent. God is sufficient in Himself. And that caused Paul to praise. So God owes no one anything. To stop and think deeply about this is to remind us of our abject dependence upon God and to expand our thinking about the goodness and mercy and power of God. The things we take for granted, the things that we depend upon, the things without which we cannot live, all come to us from God. Every good thing in life that we enjoy 
has come to us from the kindness of God. Think about that. I mean, here we are, we're sitting in wonderful air conditioned space with comfortable chairs. Our hearts are beating because of God. You're breathing air and that air is being oxygenated and it's carried throughout your body by your bloodstream. Why? Because of God. You're able to think about the things that you're hearing. You're able to read the words in the Bible. Where'd that come from? God. You know the the value of a friendship, of love. You've experienced blessings in the world. Why? From whence? God. All we are is from God. God's grace is the foundation, the basis upon which we live every moment of our lives, every breath you take. And that's true for believers who realize it and unbelievers who don't. Whether a person acknowledges God or not, it's still true. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the goodness of our God in Matthew 5.45, He said He makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. The evil and the good. This whole world, everything in it, is because of God and His grace. What's true not only of our physical lives, it's also true of our spiritual lives. Brothers and sisters, we're here this morning loving God. But do you know why we love God? Because He first loved us. We're here this morning trusting Jesus Christ, but do you know why we trust Jesus Christ? Because God God revealed Him to us. God gave us His Word and He sent His Spirit and He opened up our understanding and He unstopped our deaf ears so that we could see and believe the truth that is in Jesus. God freely sent Jesus into the world in order to redeem sinners. And Jesus freely kept the commandments of God to earn righteousness. Do you ever think about that? The Son of God was righteous, is righteous, inherently, eternally righteous. He didn't need to earn righteousness. And yet He submitted Himself as a real man, to earn righteousness. Not for himself, but for his people. And then, having never sinned, having never done anything contrary to the will of God, he submitted himself to death on the cross under the wrath of God to pay for sin. Why? Not not because he had any sin to pay for, but because of the grace and mercy of God towards sinners who need somebody. To pay for our sin. Our salvation. Is all of grace. And then to make sure we don't miss the point of his rhetorical question. Paul adds this. Explanatory statement in verse 36. He says. For from him. And through him. And to him. Are all things. This this is a positive summation of everything Paul's already asserted. In this doxology. For God's unfathomable excellencies are praiseworthy 33 and 34 and now for God's undeniable self-sufficiency we offer up praise verse 35 in the first part of verse 36 God is undeniably and completely sufficient in himself Paul uses three prepositional phrases 
in this first part of verse 36. All those phrases describe all things, everything that exists. And in essence, we could break them apart and make three categorical statements about everything that will ever and has ever existed. Let's look at them. All things are first from God. He's the source of everything. God made everything. Everything that is, is because of God. Nothing in this world has come into existence apart from God. Brothers and sisters, this is why it is so important that we remind ourselves and teach our children and keep it fresh in our minds. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first thing that God determined to reveal to us in his written word is that from the beginning, he is God and everything else has come from God. This second prepositional phrase that leads us to a categorical statement is that all things are through God. What this means is that God's the sustainer of everything. He doesn't just create things and back off. He creates things and he sustains them. He keeps them in existence. Were God to withdraw his hands from creation, it would implode. There would be nothing holding us together. In Hebrews 1 verse 3 He tells us that the son of God is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God not only brings everything into existence, he keeps everything existing as well. All things are from him. All things are through him. And then thirdly, all things are to God, to God. What does that mean? It means everything leads back to him. Everything is for him, for his glory, the purpose of and goal of everything that exists is the glory of God. Do you see this? Do you believe this? This world, you, me, everything you know that is true in this world exists from God. It's held together by God and it is for God. You know, we we have these bridges in and out of Cape Coral and North Fort Myers and we get to drive over the Caloosahatchee River Sometimes at sunrise, sunset, man, it's beautiful. You know, you see the sailboats out there and it's just idyllic. You know, the Caloosahatchee River exists for the glory of God. The Gulf of Mexico, some of you love to go to the beach. Next time you're at the beach, stop and think, you know what? The Gulf of Mexico exists for the glory of God. God created this by himself. He keeps it. Through himself. He's done it for himself. Southwest Florida. Exists for the glory of God. Mountains exist. For the glory of God. Monkeys exist for the glory of God. Snakes exist for the glory of God. Not always sure how. But nevertheless it's true. It's true. Beetles. Dogs. Cats. People. Love. Friendship, lightning, it all exists for the glory of our God. What this means is your children, your grandchildren, your parents exist for the glory of God. Your health, your wealth, your very life exists for the glory of God. 
these United States of America exist for the glory of God. Canada exists for the glory of God. Cuba exists for the glory of God. Ukraine, Russia exists for the glory of God. In many ways, this world doesn't presently look like it came from God. It certainly doesn't look like God's sustaining it. It looks chaotic at times. And it doesn't look like it exists for the glory of God because so many people live as if there's not a God. They have no regard for God. But Scripture tells us all these things contrary to what the evidence that we can determine with our senses would suggest. All these things are true. And one day, what we receive by faith now will be plainly manifested and manifested in such a way that everybody will know it. One day, as the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a vision. What a day. Can you imagine the earth being filled with not just the glory of God, but the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea? Where's the sea? It's where the water is. Where's the water? It's where the sea is. It's interchangeable in such a way as that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It's going to happen. It's on God's calendar. At the right time, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, the end will come. Then he writes, When Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He goes on. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. That day's coming. Paul sees it. He understands it because he's been writing about it in this book of Romans, especially as the grace of God in Jesus Christ is being made known to those Romans and to us. And as Paul grasps more and more of God, he just has to stop. And he says, how deep are the riches, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Praise God for His self-existence. His self-sufficiency. Because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. This is God's show. He's working. He's doing what He's determined to do in a way that will ultimately redound to His glory. And everybody's going to see it. Now Paul saw it by faith. And he's calling upon us to see it by faith, to take God at his word so that as we anticipate the day when it will be made known to our senses, we will have already been prepped because by faith we've tasted it and we've lived in the light of it. All that we are, all that we have comes from God, is being sustained by God and is designed by him for God.
Now, I know there's some of you here this morning and, and you're not Christians. You're not trusting Jesus Christ. But I, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad God brought you here. It's not an accident that you're here. But I just want to press to you a little bit. Do you see what the Bible is saying? Do you, do you realize that God created you the way you are? And God has kept you alive to this very moment. He's brought you into this gathering where we've sung these songs. We've read these portions of his word and we're focusing in on these verses right now. He's done that. He's done that. And he made you for his glory. And if you keep trying to live life on your own terms, if you don't stop and recognize that there's a God in heaven and these things are true, then you're not going to live well in this world. You're going to live at counter purposes to the God who made you. And your life, no matter what you might accomplish and what little things you might enjoy along the way, you're going to miss life because you'll miss God. I mean, it'd be like if somebody gave you a Lamborghini and said, hey, take this and enjoy it. And you said, I think I'm going to enjoy this Lamborghini. Let me find a Volkswagen's owner's manual so that I can service this Lamborghini according to this Volkswagen's owner's manual. Well, you know, you'll get some mileage out of it, right? You'll enjoy it a little bit. But you keep doing that, what's going to happen? You're going to mess it all up. You're not going to be able to enjoy what you could have enjoyed had you gotten in line with the one who created the car that knows best how the car is to operate. And friend, our plea to you, our invitation to you today is to come to know this God in the way that he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ so that you can come to terms with the truth that caused Paul to offer up this incredible doxology of praise to the living God. If you'll humble yourself and believe what the scripture says. And turn away from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord. Then you too will be put in a position where you can think rightly about God. Well, God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. All that he is and has done for us, he has done freely and purposefully to manifest his glory. Brothers and sisters, that includes our salvation. God was under no obligation to save people who rebelled against him. It wasn't out of some kind of need that he determined to redeem sinners to himself. It wasn't because there was any kind of obligation pressed upon him from outside that he sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. Jesus didn't come into the world and live a life of obedience to God's commands because he was compelled to do so out of a need or obligation. He's eternally righteous, needed to, didn't need to earn righteousness in any way. He didn't have any sin to pay for, but he willingly laid his life down on the cross. Why? So that those who turn from sin and trust him might be reconciled to God, so that God might be glorified in saving sinners. God delights to save rebels. It's astounding to think of this. The overarching reason that God sent his son, that God has designed the world the way that he has, that God sends his spirit and his word to reveal Christ in us is so that he might receive glory. We get great benefit, yes. But in and through all of that, 
God has designed benefits that come to us through knowing Jesus Christ as Lord will glorify him as God. This is a great truth. It ought to impel us, brothers and sisters, to live according to God's revealed will. It ought to cause us to to try to persuade others to come to know Jesus. I mean, we don't want them to go to hell. We want them to know the wonders of salvation and forgiveness of sin. All that is right and good and true. But in and through beyond that, we ought to want to see our God glorified in the salvation of sinners. God deserves to have more glory here in Southwest Florida than he has. He deserves to be seen as God by our co-workers, our friends, those that don't care about God, that don't think about God. God deserves to have them unite with us in singing praise to this one God who saves sinners through Jesus Christ. And we ought to be seeking to persuade men and women and children to bow the knee to Jesus for the glory of our great God. Praise God for his undeniable self-sufficiency. The third way that truth about God shapes our worship of God that sound theology results in genuine doxology is found in the very last phrase of verse 36. We are to praise God forever. To Him be glory forever. Amen. His praiseworthiness is eternal. He is the only eternal being, has always existed and always will exist. He's the all-glorious God and He deserves, deserves to be known as God and worshipped and praised as God forever. And God's eternal glory is worthy of our affirmation. Amen. That's why Paul says amen. That little word is found so often throughout Old and New Testament. It's this is true. Yes. I concur. It is right. Paul is underscoring the truthfulness of all that he has expressed in this doxology. Everything that he has said about God. That God has unfathomable excellencies. That God alone is self-sufficient. And that God is worthy to be praised forever. Paul said, Amen. Can you add your amen to that? Will you praise this great and glorious God for all of your life? Will you determine throughout all of eternity beginning now to praise this incredible saving God? The more we know him, the more we will praise him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you the way that you worked in the Apostle Paul as he wrote these truths about your grace in Christ and he couldn't help himself but just break out in praise. We, we ask that you would show us what you showed him, that you would make us people that are just overwhelmed with your glory, that we would be filled with wonder in how we live our lives, that we would desire to add our amen to everything the Apostle has written about your worthiness of our praise. Help us, O oh God. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.